Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, where we explore the latest advances in cancer research and patient care. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to visit oncdata.com for more content, including expert perspectives from leading oncology thought leaders, FDA approvals, patient advocacy, and much more. And don't forget to subscribe to Oncology Data Advisor on social media to stay up to date on the latest videos, podcasts, and more. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Mwabi. I'm a breast medical oncologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and I'm a member of the editorial board at uh, Oncology Data Advisor. And today I have the pleasure to be joined by two guests, Ross McLean, who is the executive vice president of Precision Health Economics and Outcome Research and the head of medical affairs for Precision Value and Health, and Michael Glover, Kinexa Consultancy, LLC. And today our topic is very, very, very interesting. And it's about the oncology drug accelerated FDA approval and the big debate surrounding the FDA's decision on which oncology drugs are deemed not worthy of such approval. So it's really important first to uh, define what is accelerated approval. So my first question is a little bit loaded, but what is accelerated approval and what is needed to obtain such an approval? And if we can go also to the weeds, how does it differ from a regular uh, FDA drug approval? And for the physician that sees patients on a day-to-day basis, should they view an accelerated approval differently than uh, a regular uh, approval? Thank you, Dr. Mwabi. Ross McLean here. Uh, Great pleasure to be here today. Um, at At the end of the day, all the use of any and all treatments is a function of the benefit and risk known about that treatment. And um, when one thinks about accelerated approval, it's the regulator trying to balance the demand from the provider for treatment options, the excitement from the patient about potentially innovative, possibly even curative treatments, and the uh, and the conservative, uh, data-driven fact-based requirements of the regulator to make sure, to the best of their ability, the drug is uh, is safe and there is demonstrated efficacy. And that's a tension in any and all drugs. It's not just a cancer thing. It's uh, it's in all drugs, all treatments. And so accelerated approval emerged in just after, in 1992 as a means to try and address this tension in areas of huge unmet need where the very act of seeing a clinical trial program through to its classical or conventional completion would add many years to the potential approval. And in that time, possibly dozens, hundreds, or thousands of people could have not had the chance to receive access to that treatment. So it was a, I think it, it wasn't a response to consumer pressure. It was a response to the natural tension to um, bring innovation to patients, which we know is something near and dear to the American people, yet at the same time balance with the need to generate the right data to prove that the drug is is safe and efficacious. And so that's the origin of it. With any good intention uh, and good idea, clearly there's challenges. And I think what we're witnessing right now are some of the challenges that are emerging after what is about 30 years worth of having this process in place. But we'll get into that in a minute. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, well put, Ross, from, from, from the perspective of, uh, from a pharma perspective, if you think about where the roots of accelerated approval came from, it was HIV is where it was really stemmed from, was a higher met need with, with very little 
are very few potential um, solutions to, to that disease. And, and that's where it was born, as, as Ross said, the sort of early 90s. Uh, and now you're seeing accelerated approval used for many things, um, not just oncology, but other diseases. And then more recently, you've seen it used in, in Alzheimer's. So you have a, you have a, and a process here where the, where the FDA has basically said, okay, we have a high omega need, we have a, our small population, or we have a, a, a disease that doesn't have any, any, any potential um, treatments currently, or it's very rare. So if you look at those things together, and as Ross says, a, a, a normal clinical trial, particularly in a rare disease, may take you know, three, four, five, six, ten 10 years for it to get to conclusion. So the decision and the discussion is, well, how do we get it to patients quickly whilst continue to collect data? And I think that's where some of the potential misalignments and in incentives are, and we'll get into that later. But that's kind of where the accelerated approval process has come from and where it sits. No, that's uh, very interesting. Um... I'm the type that I like a little bit more uh, example. So the next question is, can we provide a little bit of an overview about this? Why is it controversial? Why do we always think about accelerated approval controversial? I can tell you for, as a breast oncologist, I remember the days of Avastin when it first got the accelerated approval and then everybody was using it. And then a few years later, it failed to get the full approval and it was all mm -hmm. of a sudden taken off. So I lived through that a little bit uh, in breast oncology, but I understand there is other example out there um, about why, why it's controversial and if we can talk a little bit about it. And what are some of the key regulatory issues that have sparked that debate within the industry and among stakeholders? Yeah, and, and, and uh, there's some good examples in, in one of the discussion topics that Ross and I pulled together. I was just looking at some interesting information the other day. If you look at um, um, Medicaid, for example, 9% you know, of the spend of Medicaid spend is on accelerated approval drugs but it accounts for 0.4% of the total prescription levels. So there's already an imbalance between what's being spent and what the actual numbers of patients are. But also, you think about, you've talked about the Avastin example as well. There are examples of drugs that have been on the market for eight, nine, 10 years and still don't have a confirmatory trial, but are still being paid for and are still being used by physicians. And I think that's where we have some of the controversy to say, well, actually, who does the risk lie with? Does it rely with the pharmaceutical company or does it lie with the um, FDA or does it lie with the physician or the patient? If you've got a drug that's been accelerated through to approval and there's no confirmatory trial coming through for eight, nine, 10 years, and then that trial comes through and it maybe is negative, then what happens there? That's, a, that's an interesting discussion, both philosophical and from a financial discussion about who, who bears the risk for that. And I think that's some of the, the, the pieces of work we want to get into thinking about what the incentive process is around that. And I think Ross, you've got one or two examples as well, where you know drugs have been around for a while, have gone through the accelerated, accelerated process, but still don't have a confirmatory outcome at the end of the day. Sure. Yes. Thank you, Mike. Um, Dr. Moabi, I want to pick up on one interesting point you made as a practicing oncologist, which is, you know, I, Dr. Moabi, had used Avastin, and uh, one would assume had found it to be uh, a helpful adjunct in the care of your patients only to be disappointed when it was uh, some of the indications were found not to um, have efficacy and safety. I think it, it, it exemplifies one of the great tensions in medicine, which is the perspective of an individual patient, or in your case, an individual provider, is oftentimes very anecdotal based upon very small numbers, whereas the population health scientist or the regulator looks at it also from a much um, a population perspective, i.e., a bigger aim. So it would it, 
it would be a very unusual physician who is going to be capturing data on all his or her patients over the course of many years so that he or she can generate aggregate data on does this drug have efficacy or does it have effectiveness in a real-world setting. So I think you're, you're exemplifying a tension between what is uh, what individuals remember and the uh, ability to aggregate that at, over the course of many years or many patients, which is clearly a very difficult thing to do. The second, to, to pick up on Mike's point about you know value for money and the cost to the federal government, I think we also have examples in adekinumab from Biogen for Alzheimer's disease is, uh, as a great example that this drug, despite significant debate and controversy, received accelerated approval um, and uh, then arrived on the market with uh, what many might call a, a, a high price. Now, we could spend all day debating price versus value, but at the end of the day, this was a high price, and if you're the federal government, you were potentially facing huge costs to provide this treatment to so many people who had signs of cognitive impairment. There have also been these poster child children for um, how to uh, that, that have pushed the boundaries of what accelerated approval was originally intended for. Uh, Mike's comment, you know, rare, uncommon, high unmet need conditions where there's really no treatment option is quite different to accelerated approval for a drug that might treat potentially millions or tens of millions of people with a chronic ailment. So I think sometimes the industry uh, can bring a challenge upon itself by uh, pursuing accelerated approval for drugs that have for, very, for common chronic illnesses. Yeah, we got, yes, definitely. We'll get into those in a second. But I'm really curious. Do you know a percentage of how many accelerated approval eventually make it to a full approval? I think it's about it's about fifty two, fifty eight percent. And I know it's 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 not all. Um, yeah, <laughs> put it that yeah, way. Yeah, that's a problem, huh? And that's the problem. And, and and if you think about the Alzheimer's example, I know it's outside of oncology, but there was a drug that was going to take a minimum of ten years to show an outcome. And and that was that was agreed between the FDA and between between the organisation that launched it. It was going to take ten years to show some outcomes, and that's where you know Ross talks about is the accelerated approval process fit for purpose when it's going to take ten plus years to get an outcome. And I, and I think that could be where there is potential misalignments and incentives between pharma and, and the FDA. But you you are seeing um, you know, other examples of drugs that have accelerated approval in the US but aren't launched elsewhere. You know they don't get regulatory approval in the European space because of the data sets they come to the market with. And I think there again is other discussion to have about okay, just what does accelerated approval mean for us in terms of the data set we are going to have, and how quickly will we get confirmatory outcomes? You know, in your space, you know, the major outcome is, is overall survival OS. What does that look like? You know, do you get OS in one year or are you going to get it in 10 years? What does it look like to, to really drive that forward? And that's why I think there's some of the misalignment and where the decision between the accelerated approval is and what the outcomes could be from a physician's perspective. Yeah, no, that's uh, excellent. An excellent segue to my next question. So because the accelerated approval is available, how does that influence biopharma in terms of innovation and the specifically the oncology sector, but we can talk about other sectors as well. And more specifically, if we can dive into the pricing strategy, because you're right, whenever an accelerated approval comes, the price tag is pretty hefty. Yeah. Uh, and how does it also influence their drug development? Because 
if I am a pharma company and I'm developing a drug and I can go for an accelerated approval, I'm going to be aiming for that first, right? Because it can be a source of huge revenue as we're waiting for more data from another study to confirm it. So, so mm. how does those influence uh, biopharma, those two things? Yeah, so it's a great question. And, you know, it's very easy to tip into a cynical head here when you talk about this type of approach, about you know, can I drive for accelerated approval? Because once you launch your product on the market, you, the clock starts there in terms of the life cycle of the brand when it's out in the marketplace. So if you're waiting for your confirmatory trials three, four, five years later, when you could have had four or five years on the market, an accelerated approval, generating those high revenues and high costs, there's actually a bit of a perverse incentive to drive for accelerated approval to get it out there quickly. Now, one of the discussions we should be having in this space is how do you get the FDA and pharma companies to talk about what does alignment in incentives look like? Because you could say, well, I'm going to get my accelerated approval now and I'm going to you know, kick the can down the road in terms of what outcomes and, and, and overall survival looks like in terms of the confirmatory trial. Now, I don't think pharma do that and I've never been involved in that discussion. But it's easy to see how that could be part of the discussion about, well, actually, if we can wait three or four years for the confirmatory trial, that's three or four years we've been on the market. And I think that's where there's a discussion to be had about the FDA being clearer on, okay, you're going to launch. We've got two years to get data. Let's start to think about what an interim OS position looks like so we know we're on the right track. So I think there are some discussions that we should be having between pharma and FDA about what does the incentive process look like to have products on the market. Well, you have you know, physicians and, and patients saying, you know, I want access to this drug. You now have the right to try, which is kicking around in the background as well. We have patients who are you know, on, on no other options to go for, and they can ask a company to supply a drug. You know, that's the, the sort of the final step in terms of getting patients onto potential outcomes and potential you know, in, in um, uh, exploratory medicines. But I do think in this space where the accelerated approval process is in place, there should be a much more robust discussion between the pharma company and the FDA about just what are the milestones we've got to put in place to make sure we are actually seeing this drug do what it says. I'd add just a couple of points. Going back to um, building off Mike's comment, going back to the endpoint debate, I think what the accelerated approval has shown is that um, the FDA and the manufacturer are also should also be debating which endpoint is appropriate. It's mm. very easy say, well, it should all be about overall survival, but that has huge implications on the duration, viability, yeah. and size of trials, and therefore the costs. At the same time, if we go for surrogates such as response rate or uh, progression-free survival in the case of cancer, this, this makes the trials potentially much faster, but then raises the, all the risks and the concerns about surrogates. We just completed some research which we published on um, progression-free survival, which highlights something really important that I think we've all heard before. It's uh, attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but I think we've all heard it from our, our elders and betters, which is value the life in your years, not the years in your life. And so the research we just completed in uh, different, several different cancers was that patients actually, given the choice of OS or PFS, they would naturally pick uh, overall survival, but a significant number of patients uh, differed, and they said, "Well, life is not infinite. I would, I'm more interested in having uh, a meaningful response, but with high quality of life. With that, i.e., give me in the days that I've got left, make them high quality." So, I think it, it triggers this interesting debate about if we can't, if OS has its 
challenges and therefore makes accelerated approval very difficult and nobody ever therefore pursues the formal approval and other surrogates are imperfect, well, what's the happy medium where we get endpoints that matter to the patient, they matter to the provider, but aren't necessarily the hardest of all endpoints, which is just purely survival. So I think it raises an interesting debate. The second of my comments is um, we are seeing emerging technologies uh, that are potentially going to transform this. Tokenization is something we're beginning to hear a lot about, which is the ability to, in a HIPAA-compliant way, link the data of a patient in the United States from across different settings. So, for example, Dr. Moabi, it would be possible to link a patient in a clinical trial to their data post-trial when they go back to the clinic, cared for by their insurer, and live their life. So this potentially offers a, a technological solution that might allow the innovator, the biopharma company, to follow these patients and generate the overall survival uh, data, but without the huge logistic constraints of long-term extensions or five or, as Mike said, 10-year long trials. So I think there are emerging solutions, which may also uh, mean that there is a path forward, but it's only going to happen if the FDA and the um, innovators are all speaking to each other. And if I can just pick up on the endpoints piece, I think it's a really important point to think about, particularly from two, two perspectives. One is, what is a physician trying to achieve in terms of that medicine and that treatment therapy area? What does the patient want to achieve? Um, you know, as you say, the patients want that, that quality of life whilst they're still surviving the disease. And it may not be OS is the, is the overall thing, depending on you know, what happens towards the more, more end-of-life care. So there is a discussion here where the patient needs to be involved about, it's particularly in a, in a disease area where there is very little option. And obviously, this is where accelerated approval starts to really show, show itself in terms of there's very little options available. Just what will the patient's quality of life look like and what types of endpoints do you need to think about? And that, again, is a, is a rich source of discussion to have, I think, between the pharma, the innovator company, the FDA, and the physician and patient population, what does that look like to have those discussions going on? So I think it's important to think about that. And then in terms of the, the, the endpoints themselves, you know, is, is PFS what you want to drive for and how long do you need to do that for? But then thinking about in a, in a single arm environment where you have a, a, a very rare area with, one or two, with only one or two products in that space, and it's very difficult to put comparators in place, how do you, as you talk about that, collect the real world evidence to demonstrate that you're having an outcome and you're being beneficial to that patient population? I think that is a very underexplored area, not just in the US, but, but globally, where the, 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 the regulatory authorities and the, the HD authorities maybe not look as robustly what real world evidence can give to help you know, drive a, an outcome in the accelerated rural space. So I think there was a few areas to really dig into that pharma and FDA and innovative companies can really start talking more closely about. I, I fully agree. As a treating physician, I can tell you what my patient really care about is to stay on that line of therapy, on that drug as long as possible and have as long as possible for this disease control. When you talk about overall survival, I tend to explain it to them. It's not with this line of therapy is overall, when you get all your lines of therapy, how much we improve survival compared to, when you tell, talk to them like this, they get depressed, they don't wanna hear that. They wanna know that this line of therapy is gonna work and it's gonna work for a long time um, for them. Um, and you know, I, we can go through the weeds of those a little bit. Is the goal for a full FDA approval, the primary outcome of a study 
And I can give you an example for that in the breast space when we talk about CDK46 inhibitors. Mm. All the studies that look at that, their primary endpoint was progression-free survival. And if you look at all the different drugs we have in, across all the study, their hazard ratio is almost similar. Mm. You know, about 0.5 something, all of them across the board. Yet when you look at the overall survival data, which was not a primary endpoint, it was a secondary endpoint, and none of those studies were really powered to capture it, but it was a secondary endpoint that they were looking for it. Uh, they found that one drug did, whereas the other two did not. And now there's a big debate in the field, whether or not we should follow the one that has the OS survival and drop the other two. What do you say for that? Should studies just follow the, and the, the approval should come because of that primary endpoint, or they should look for other endpoint like the overall survival? And if so, should overall survival be a primary endpoint in those studies? Good question. Ross, do you want to jump in this one? And I'll, I'll, I'll jump in because I think, you know. I'm going to plead the fifth on that. I'm not sure I'm qualified to uh, render an opinion on uh, the, a mandate that in the case of cancer trials, Dr. Moabi, that uh, the primary endpoint should be the only endpoint. I think that would be potentially too narrow a view. Mm and not give treatments or patients options. I mean, at the end of the day, for some of these uh, drugs and treatments, we're looking at people uh, who are very sick, coming towards the end of their life, regardless of the treatment options, and for whom this is a very difficult benefit-risk discussion in yeah. what remains of their life. So I, I think, going back to our opening comments, I, I hear you loud and clear on the multiple different statistics and uh, endpoints and data points, but I think we, ha we have to also think that, find that balance between safe, efficacious medicines and giving the patient hope that something is out there that might help them. Yeah, I think the key phrase you say there, Ross, is the benefit-risk discussion. And that's a benefit-risk discussion between the innovator organization, the FDA, a physician and the patient particularly in an area where there is a high unmet need, i.e. a disease where there's very few options or no options and you're coming first or second to market, or in a very rare disease where there is no other options available. And I think that discussion needs to be, okay, well, what endpoints is really important for us? What endpoints are going to show that the patient is benefiting and the risk-benefit ratio is going the right way? It may not be OS. It may be PFS. It could be response rate. It could be something else. Or it could be a mixture of all, of all two or three different points coming together. I think what's important to understand is that the physician, the patient, and the FDA and the innovator company goes into the discussion with their eyes open about just what's going to be the benefit for the for the population you're serving there. And that's where there is a mixture of endpoints. So I wouldn't, you know, from my perspective, want to define we have to have OS or that's that's the end of the game. But I want to have a discussion about just what is important for the physician and the patient to achieve in their treatment options. Is it PFS or is it a mixture of PFS and response rate, or is it something else? And that's a discussion that you need to have with yourself and with the physician and the patient together. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and, and now to the fun part of this meeting, let's look ahead. How do you envision the future of the FDA accelerated approval oncology? And is there some new emerging trends that we can use? Like, I like the one that you mentioned, the tokenization, if you can define it again and see like where does it fit in the future where we can capture in real life uh, the, the survival of the patient after uh, they become off study? Mm. I, I'll, uh, I'll go first. I, yeah. My perspective is that this, the, the, the future of accelerated approval offers a huge uh, opportunity for pharma to uh, 
further advance transparency and to own drugs, own it when drugs appear not to work. So mm. everything and I have discussed and that you've raised, Dr. Muabi, around cho choosing endpoints, what matters to patients, the fact that this could be uh, transparent and in the public domain, published and debated is clearly very important. But more importantly than even that is that when a signal appears that a drug does not work, that the company should own taking that off the market as quickly as possible, but should also own percent, uh, potentially, or not potentially, but should also own removing the drug from that for use in that indication in an active manner, but also in countries beyond the FDA's remit, uh, because this is a global issue around lack of efficacy, uh, potentially a safety concern. There's a famous statement a drug that doesn't work is nothing other than a safety concern because the patient's likely going to get none of the efficacy and some of the, safe, and some of the side effects. So I think there's a chance for the pharmaceutical industry to, to take a leadership there. And um, there's also a chance for the regulator to, to be viewed to partner appropriately in evolving what accelerated approval actually looks like in the, in the 2020s. Mike? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the ownership piece is an important discussion that the that the regular the, the, the individual organization needs to step up and have, and have an honest discussion about internally. You know, what does it look like when a drug has a signal to show that it, the 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 intended outcome isn't the right outcome or isn't going the right way? And that, that is an open discussion between the, the individual organization and the FDA, coming back to what is the right incentives to have a, a drug to go through the accelerated approval process. So that when you do get those signals that things aren't going the way they should be, the incentives are in place to, 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 to take action, to either remove the indication, and I agree, Ross, not just in the country where the accelerated approval is at, but in any country where you have the indication launched, you know, if that signal is going the wrong way, then that, that's a signal to say that drug should not be used in that area. But it comes back to the discussion about just what does incentives look like in, in 2025, 2026 onwards, and I think the there is an onus on the farmer organizations, the innovator companies, to engage the FDA through, through PHRMA or through, other, through our sources and say, how do we realign or align what incentives look like in the accelerated approval process? And I think the, the, the recent Alzheimer's discussion, it was interesting to see um, Biogen withdraw um, one, of the, one of the drugs recently, is going to in, accelerate this program, for want of a, uh, you know, excuse the pun, but accelerate the discussion about what an incentive an aligned incentive program looks like for accelerated approval drugs. And I think it, that's an important discussion that, that should be uh, you know, kicked off, I think, accelerated again by the pharma organizations to say, we need to have a discussion with you, FDA, and with the physician population about what are the right incentives to make sure that we are both, and, and the patient itself, is benefiting from the drugs being on the market. And I think that's the next step in this discussion. No, th this is all very excellent. You know, uh, I learned a lot, definitely, uh, about uh, about this topic. It's very interesting. It is emerging. A lot of questions around it. It definitely offers much more clarity today. Before I end, do you have any closing remark, anything you would like to add? I'll start uh, with you, Mike, and then go to Rob. Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting pressures are particularly if you're a patient and there's no other options. And I think this is a pressure for the patient, the physician, and the FDA is, the accelerated approval process allows a patient to get access to a drug that they may not, not have had access to before uh, in, a, in an earlier space, in an earlier you know, phase of their disease or in a phase of their disease where they need something that they can't get access to. 
So I think the accelerated approval process is an important process. It's an important process for patient outcomes, for physician um, outcomes, and for um, you know, the population as a whole. I think for me, moving forward, I need to see more interaction between the individual organization and the FDA about just what are we trying to incentivize here? Are we incentivizing earlier access? Are we incentivizing profit motivations for pharma companies? And I think that's an important discussion we need to get into to ensure that the outcomes are the right outcomes and it's a mix of outcomes that are beneficial for the whole population. Um, thank you, Mike. It's Ross. I would just one very brief comment to build off Mike's use of the term profit maximization. I do think I go back to an, a moment of leadership for the biopharma industry, which is um, a chance if a a drug that has been approved under the accelerated approval process is found ultimately to work. Congratulations. Continue with the commercialization and safe and appropriate use of that. Well done. You've, you've played by the rules and lets patients and prescribers have access to it. But if you haven't, let's own that and get that drug appropriately off the market or the indication no longer use. Because I could imagine a scenario where some of the stakeholders who paid for that drug, which was ultimately found not to actually work or potentially cause harm, wondering where the uh, revenues went that they paid for for that patient. So I think this is a chance for pharma to own that before um, something is imposed upon them. Definitely. And with that, I want to thank both our guests today, uh, Ross McLean and Michael Glover for this very, very interesting uh, uh, interview. And to our uh, audience, thank you so much for joining in and uh, for the next one. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.